You're locked in to DJ and PK. Lock. Presented by Mark Miller Subaru on 975-1280 the zone in the Zone Sports Network. Lock. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. PK, who says you don't write with a flourish? You're not a good enough writer. You're a reporter. You're a grinder. Oh, wait, I thought that was the point. Well, that aside, you wrote the, uh, the question of the day. This game is huge, huge, huge. Ginormous, we say. So what happens on the Azul turf in Boise? I like that. The Azul turf. And I always love the word ginormous. And people say it's not a word. You. It is a word. If I say something well, did, is ginormous, you know exactly what I mean. So it's a word. Well, it didn't come up wrong on the spell check, so it must be a word. Oh, maybe they officially finally included it, like irregardless and uh, ain't. It, yeah. Well, irregardless was always a word, you folk. I mean, I don't get it, man. I'm a trendsetter, if not nothing else. <laughs> Uh, you're something else, that's for sure. All right. No doubt. The game is huge. What happens? Corey, close. Hard-fought game. BYU wins a close one as they appear to be more stout on both lines, and games are won in the trenches. I can't say they're more stout. I, I, don't, I don't know that, though. Where is the doubt in your mind? What creates it? Where? Yeah, what creates the doubt, and where is it? Which line? Or both. Uh, well, I would think that as, as I try to analyze this and take it for what it's worth, so you got BYU's defense going against Boise's offense and vice versa, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about the trenches. And I, I think that where the Cougars could have an advantage, and if they don't, they're going to be in trouble, is their offensive line being a little stouter, if you will, than the Boise State defensive line. But, you know, there's ways around that. If that's the case, Boise's not just going to sit in some base defense and say, well, man, they're just bigger and tougher and better than us, so we're screwed. No, I mean, obviously there's ways around that. So even having with that in mind, you can overcome that to a good degree. But certainly, any, and this is really no big uh, secret, and every level of football, you're going to have to open holes and provide Zach Wilson with some time. And I, I think they can do that, so Boise's going to have to trick it up a little bit. And I think that I feel as confident as I've felt in a good long while, probably going back 10 years in terms of the quarterback's maturity, and not just that, but the coaches knowing what they're doing and being ready to be able to be prepared going into the game and then being able to make adjustments during the game based on what they see Boise doing. I think this is set up back as good as back to the Anai slash John Beck uh, Max Hall time. You know what I mean there Mm -hmm. as far as the combination of coaches and experience at the quarterback spot. It'll be interesting to talk to B.J. Raines, Boise State beat writer for the Idaho Press Tribune and Blue Turf Sports. He's going to join us coming up at 9.05. Uh, 
are the Broncos going to have to go with their backup quarterback and their backup running back? I know we focus on offense a lot, but I think we ought to focus on the BYU defense for a couple of minutes here. Boise State has scored and moved the ball and has a lot of confidence. But we've now seen that them lighting up Utah State doesn't mean much. The Aggies are getting lit up every game. They're giving up 38 points and 500 yards a game. Round numbers. Ballpark. That's a ton of points and a ton of yards. And then shredding Air Force with 49 points and 49 plays, and we know Air Force is missing almost half their team. So I don't think this is a tested Boise State offense with a backup quarterback and a backup running back. Now, if they get their guys back, well, Halani had a 1,000-yard season, and, and we know who he is, right? So that, that changes stuff. But in sports, nobody wins forever. And the Broncos have five straight wins over BYU up there. The three teams up here are 0-16 over 24 years. So it makes sense to me when you go up there with a quarterback the NFL likes, with at least a couple offensive linemen they like, a defensive lineman they like, and the other team shorthanded, I think the BYU defense has a chance to do a decent job against Boise State. Not shut them down, but if it gets tight and you're out there with the backups, do you expect them to make big plays and come from behind? And make clutch yeah, third down conversions and score in the red zone. I don't think they're going with backups. I think they're going with players that are capable of playing. Just because you're a starter or not a starter doesn't mean necessarily that you're the, the backup. The backup implies that you're not good. And I don't see that at all. Sears is quality. And they've had 10-plus years of 1,000-yard rushers. So they know how to move the ball on offense. And so... That's what matters. And as Kalani says, it doesn't really matter who is there. They've been able. I mean, last year, they started three quarterbacks also, if I remember correctly. Uh, and you know, they still had a, a really good season. So, And then you look at BYU. If you, if you were from the Boise media perspective, oh, my gosh, they're starting a third-team quarterback. Yeah, well, BYU won the game. So that same logic that you're trying to apply didn't apply as recently as last season. Ah, but last season BYU did beat them, and that's the other thing I'm falling that's, back on. That is that I think this Cougar about. team is better than that Cougar team. Oh, if you're picking BYU to win, I don't have any problem with that. I've got yeah, absolutely. I I understand that, but I'm saying that just because of these other things, I don't know that that puts Boise at a significant disadvantage because we would have thought as recently as the last time they met that BYU was at a significant disadvantage, but yet they won the game. So it's a matter of the players do you have, are they capable? Not are they backups, are they capable? And I think the answer for me, particularly with Sears, the answer is yes, he's capable. And he can beat you. So I wouldn't really, if you're picking BYU, and I have, as I say, no problem with that, I wouldn't say, well, one of the reasons I'm picking them is because Boise may not have its starter. To me, I don't see where that's a good enough reason. If you like the Cougars to win this game, no problem. And I don't see why you wouldn't like the Cougars to win this game. This is a great opportunity for them to really solidify who they are, and they've got experienced talent. I think that's the big thing, is that these guys, a majority of them, have played a lot of football now. And they've played a lot of football, whether they're on offense or defense, basically under the same coaches. 
defensively, you know, I don't remember the last time they made a change in the coaching staff. Offensively, they've made a change at running back and offensive line here recently. But the two mainstays in terms of uh, the Grime Dog and A-Rod, those guys are still there. So this is a, this is a well-trained BYU football team right now because they've got a lot of playing experience. I think that is the number one reason to pick the Cougars. And if you want to go that way, great. I get it. I support it. Most of the games up there, maybe all of them, but certainly most of them, have come down to one or two key moments, one or two big plays. You don't need much of an edge. I don't think you need much of a drop-off between the starters and backups, nor do you need much of an improvement from BYU. You know, it's uh, sure. you know Zach Wilson is a better player than he was last year. It's not night and day, um, you know, but he's got an edge this year he didn't have last year. And you need to make a play or two somewhere. I mean, we can all remember the missed two-point conversion here, the missed field goal there, you know, the, the confusion inside the five-yard line, and, and you know, they, they want that back. They'd like to line up one more time and run that play one more time and win that game, but the moment's gone. You know, the moment's just gone. So are they going to seize that moment and make that play tonight? I don't expect a blowout. I would be really surprised if that happened. I expect it's going to be another tight game. Um, we'll, see what, yeah. uh, we'll see what B.J. Reigns has to say about where Boise State sits. You know, you watch these first two teams trying to get a read, but the more I watch the team's other games, the more I think, I don't think I got a very good read on Boise State. You know, Boise State, that if you really want to look at something they've been consistent at for 20 years, yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. lose those kind of games. They don't tend to have – they tend to lose to the best teams – in close games. They tend to go to Power 5 teams. Sometimes they pull it off. A lot of times they don't, right? And they, they've gone to Georgia. I think they, they got beat. I think they went to Oklahoma State and got beat a couple of years ago. You know, And then occasionally a Mountain West team gets them in a grinder and finds a way to beat them in a tight game. You know, Fresno State or San Diego State or whoever. Utah State did, did work them pretty good one time. That, was, that See, was pretty unusual. For me, the great thing about the Cougars this particular year it's not so much about the opposition on their schedule this season. You know, getting a bowl game, uh, maybe we'll change our mind. But it's about what the Cougars are able to do. And that's where I feel confidence with them because if, they're, if they do what they're capable of doing, irregardless of the opponent, they're going to win the game. And that's the way. And you don't always feel that way. But I do feel that way now. I feel like... If these guys play the way they're capable of playing, the way they've been coached and trained and practiced and all that stuff, that they should be able to win. And I'm sure Boise probably feels the same way too because they've got a great track record. And I, and I understand that from the Boise perspective, but I haven't always felt that way from the Cougar perspective here in recent seasons, and really why should I when you're going 4-9 and 2-7 and 6s? You shouldn't have that level of confidence. You know, maybe on an individual game. I felt like when they last time they went up to Boise, they played Western Michigan. And as I was sitting in the press box, I thought to myself, as I'm looking at the teams, I thought, man, BYU should really win this game. If they just do what they're capable of doing, they should win. And they did, obviously. And that was against a lesser opponent. Boise is not a lesser opponent by any stretch. But I still feel a whole level of confidence in the Cougars being able to do what they do. And I felt that way. There was a little moment I was a tad bit shaky against Houston. But that went away rather quickly because the Cougars did what they were capable of doing, and clearly they were the better team. 
I think very much that can happen. But when you say a player to, it reminds me of Bronco Mendenhall because he used to drill that into us when I was covering him for the watchdog at the time. So many of these games literally just come down to what you just said. A player to here or there, what's it going to be? What's going to be the defining play or plays? And there's normally not more than just a few of them when you have a teams that are at least going into the game look like they're fairly even, evenly matched. So I can see that where it does come down to a player two. And I feel a level of confidence in BYU this year, more so than I have in many, many years, of being able to make that play. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is the chip on the shoulder. And I think that it was painful to go through, but I think these guys lost to Toledo, they lost to South Florida, and they lost at Hawaii, and they regret, <laughs> they regret a handful of plays in every one of those games. And I think it's what you saw in Houston, why when they wavered, that was resolved like, we're not doing that again. We're not doing that again. You know, and they were able to flip that game in the middle of the game, which has not been a strength of theirs. You know, when things are going well, they've got talent. And when things are going well, it keeps going well. Um, and they'll hang in there. But when they, when they really mess stuff up and dig a hole, then the doubt creeps in and it's a problem. And, you know, the other team's got the edge because Hawaii really wants to take them down because BYU's a big deal in Hawaii. And I think, I think they've got that edge tonight. But that's another thing we can ask B.J. Reigns about in half an hour. Got to take a break right now. David Locke's coming back. The NBA season. They've got the schedule. They've got a vote. It looks like they're pointed for December 22nd. Are we going to have a couple of jazz games before Christmas? We'll talk with David Locke about free agency. The draft is less than two weeks away. Stay with us. DJ and PK at 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. The play-by-play voice of BYU, Greg Rubel. Boise State announced pending permission from local health authorities. They're going to allow a number of students to come in and be a part of that game. Your thoughts on on kind of that announcement? I'm in favor of environment over no environment, right? I love the ambience of college football, and any crowd noise is good noise as far as a radio broadcaster is concerned. I guess I would just say if, you know, student-athletes, parents or family members are, are going to be allowed in the building. Well, that's great. It'd be nice if the same courtesy is extended to BYU if they have people that want to attend. It'd be kind of weird to have a game of this magnitude played in a truly empty building. And so while it might benefit Boise to an extent, I think even the Cougars would welcome a little bit of buzz, a little bit of juice in the building on Friday night. Hanson Scotting. Weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. This is DJ and PK. Presented by Mark Miller Subaru on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network.
DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. It is time to talk with David Locke, our weekly visit brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. David, my head is going to explode. November is the time for football, and I got the Masters in the NBA draft. I, this is all out of whack. I don't know what I'm doing. Ah! I think I'm with you. I think the Masters, from a TV standpoint, the Masters will be fascinating because every sporting event that has been off-kilter um, has had just terrible ratings. And the Masters is so unique and has such a, a narrow focus of fan base and is such a one-off experience, you would think that it should be fine. So it'll be interesting. But the horses that ran at the wrong time, nobody watched. You know, Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, Preakness had the worst ratings of any sporting event, and they're just off time, those one-off niche sport events. So I'm pretty curious to watch what happens with the Masters TV ratings and then um, – you know, we should be playing basketball right now. So just getting ready for the NBA draft actually just feels normal to me. I don't know anything about the draft. That's part of the deal is it's coming when there's so much going on. And usually you got time to do a deep dive, which is what is required for underclassmen coming out and uh, foreign guys coming over. And uh, what do you know for sure about this draft? So I've watched a decent amount so far. So let me try to give you my synopsis. There is not the Zion Williamson, Ja Morant talent, obviously, on the board. We all knew at this point last year that there were two really special players uh, that were there. there. You know, some people believe in James Wiseman. Some people don't. Some people believe in Anthony Edwards. Some people don't. There's a, probably a tier at the top that's a little better. The next tier of players, I actually almost feel like could be, you know, without a lot of stretching, could be 20 deep. Um, there's a abundance of players that do the right things or have the most important skills. So to me, the two most important things you have to have at this point in the draft is, or at this point in the NBA is elite athleticism or be able to stroke it, really be able to shoot it. Um, and the, almost everyone is one of those two right now. Um, the bodies and the physical uh, size of these guys is amazing. Just down the list. You just don't have the, six foot three shooting guard, you know, the CJ McCollum has turned out to be a good player, but that's a pretty rarity where that six foot two shooting guard actually turns out to work. Um, We haven't had that. There aren't a lot of those little pieces in this puzzle. So I find that if you think about players, DJ as okay, bonafide superstar, LeBron franchise changing Anthony Davis. I don't think there's that all-star there might be, I don't know who it is though. Just by numbers, there should be an all-star in this draft, but maybe not. Then you get to the next tier, which is starter, rotation player, you know, roster, non-rotation player. I actually think that the chance of Robert Wooder, who's a kid out of Mississippi State, who's in the 20s, and the chance of Killian Hayes, who's a French kid, who's being talked about in the top six, of being a starter are about the same. Um, I think... The kid out of Arizona, Josh Green, um, I think he could really be a starter in the NBA. Um, the same way that Tyrese Halliburton could be a starter in the NBA, but also might not. And he's talked about being six or seven. So I find when you start to tier them, you know, between starter, if you assume they're not going to be all-stars, and now they're starters or rotation players, that gap gets mammoth. And I think because of that, you'll see a lot of movement and you'll see a lot of people moving into the draft. And I think you won't see an order that matches any mock drafts because it's really going to be eye of beholder and what you 
uh, need for your team. So do the Jazz try to fill a need or just take the proverbial best player available? Um, I think we're pretty well set at center. Um, I feel like we're pretty well set at primary ball handler. And so if you were to draft either of those two, unless you truly loved uh, one of those two players, I think they'd have a hard time getting on the floor. So I think I might take the best player available that's not a center and not a primary ball handler. So, you know, like he's probably not going to be a first-round pick, but I really, really, really like the kid out of San Diego State. Um, but he Flynn? doesn't match. Yeah, Flynn. But he's he's doesn't he doesn't. I'm concerned. I mean, how small he is. Um, he is, you know, he's just not he's not big. Um, and I think you've really got. I think the six, unless you're really really special, I think the six foot one point guard is disappearing. Um, and um, so I think the, uh, you know, but I like him an awful lot. But for us. Like, how's he playing, right? Like, are we playing him and Donovan together? Well, if you don't really think you can play him with Donovan and Donovan's going to be playing 36 minutes a night, well, then I'm not sure I need to draft a guy who's going to get me 12 minutes a night. Like, who's that's his, you know, if, if we have a center and we really like him, but Rudy's playing 36 minutes a night, like, I, I, I don't know how we're, how we're using him in a manner that gets me more than 12 minutes a night. So I... I would take best player available that that has a route to the court. I am uh, I'm curious with some of the free agent decisions that will come up quickly after the draft, and I think one of the financial decisions that's out there, which is kind of tricky with an ownership change going on because the owners really got to sign off on something like this, but. Is it better to pay Conley a lot of money for one year, or is it better to give him some more money, have him opt out, and give him a, depending on what you think, a two- or three-year deal, build some more money in it for him, but maybe smooth out the number to give the team a, a little relief and not have one gigantic year on the contract? Or would you rather just do that because then you're going to have a gigantic year on Donovan's deal? That seems like a really important decision. In the middle of an ownership change, it seems like a difficult one, too. Yeah, I don't – you know, Dennis is so well – prepared and I mean the signature whenever you talk to anybody about Dennis and Justin is the preparation when you know I've talked to people who worked for them or around them I mean they just constantly talk about how brilliant the preparation and the amount of time and preparation it's put in and so while I understand what you're saying and it does make sense that you're asking to you know which boss are you asking this question to um, I I feel as though Dennis is so well and Justin are so well prepared and the whole front office that, you know, they're going to be able to put it into a pretty clear picture to whomever they're presenting it to, which is, you know, hey, if we do this, this is the advantages and these are the disadvantages. The fact of the matter is there's two there's two parts of this decision that I think what I think make it difficult is there's two parts of this decision that I think have to come first. Um, one is, you know, from your cap situation, what other moves are you taking are are you making and are you better off having zero on the books next year or 20 on the books in that, in that position, in that role? Um, so I think, you know, that would be, that's the first one. That's probably the, one. the other wild card that I don't want to like, I'm not making anything up here. Like I'm not, but 
we better like so the discussion that we all are having is whether Mike Conley at one year what thirty four would take not opt out to take a two year or a three year probably sixty million and figure he's going to make sixty million with the Jazz over the next three years instead of making you know fifty two if he goes to and signs a deal two year deal with someone else next year between like you're just that's the game. The assumption there is that Mike Conley wants to be in Utah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we actually don't know anything. Mike's, you know, such a nice guy. He, he's never expressed anything. But, you know, does Mike Conley want to be on a team where he's not the primary ball handler? Like, does he want to be on a team where, like, what, what's, you know, like this, that wasn't a great year for him. I, I don't think he had a, you know, due to COVID and some other things, but I don't think he had a particularly enjoyable year, partially due to a hamstring and probably nothing to the Jazz fault. But if you were to ask him, like, was that the best year of your career or the least favorite year of your career, I'm pretty certain if those were the two choices, which one he would answer. So, oh wait a minute, what know, about? But what about? Whoa, whoa, whoa! What about going forward? Hey, the first half of the year was a mess. But I thought, and you can pick a date in February, I'd have to look it up, but I thought there was a date in about February forward where he was a much better player. He was clearly, he was A, healthy, and B, had had gone through the adjustment period and figured out where he fit in on the team. I thought it was good after that. So, 100%. 100%. Right, so, and, 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 and he knows that too. Last, yeah, and maybe that's his last memory, so what I'm bringing up is irrelevant. But none of us, I've never heard anyone discuss does he in want this, it? Does he want it? Right. Does he want it? Right. Yeah. Like, that has just not been discussed at all, is whether or not Mike Conley wants to – like, if Mike Conley wants to opt out of his contract to sign a three-year contract to make a little bit more money and give the Jazz flexibility, the key piece of the whole thing is, does Mike Conley want to do it? Yep. Not does the Jazz want Mike Conley to do it, but does Mike Conley want to do it? And part of that might be Mike Conley having new questions for new ownership, which comes back to the whole, wow, this is a difficult time to get it done. Not impossible – but, you know, difficult. I think if I were a Jazz fan, it wouldn't so much fear does he want to be in Utah. It's what kind of a deal can he get from a better team where he's closer to a championship. I think the days of him being a primary player on an elite team are gone, but he can still be a really good player on a team that's closer to a championship. If you're a Jazz fan and wants to hold on to Mike Conley, that's the scenario that would worry me. Right. I, I thought the way Miami used a similarly aged Goran Dragic uh, – Admittedly, a Goran Dragic whose leg problems are more severe than Mike Conley's. But I still thought it was an interesting thing to watch, right? So they had him come off the bench. They lowered his wear and tear by having him play a lot of minutes against non-Tier 1 players. He closed the majority of games uh, even with – but Tyler Hero and and some of the other kids, you know, also had the ball in their hands a lot, Um, Jimmy Butler. And – um, and he, you know, and then when it got to be playoffs, Goran Dragic not only started, but was brilliant. Um, and I think that, I think, I don't care about starting really in this conversation, but I think the managing of how Goran Dragic and who he matched up against guarding Russell Westbrook one night, Dame Lillard the next night and, you know, whomever the, you know, Steph Curry the night after at 32 years old and un- and smaller than all of them is brutal. And I think that there's something to be said in how Miami used Dragic. Now you do that. And now Donovan Mitchell 
unless you have somebody that you're, you know, Royce O'Neal is your starting two and you put him next to Donovan and try to hide Donovan a little bit. But if you're not careful. Donovan's the one guarding Russell Westbrook, um, Steph Curry, and Dame Lillard on back-to-back nights. I'm wondering about the owner. You have a unique situation here where he grew up as a fan of the team, but he's obviously an astute businessman or he wouldn't be able to own the team. So when it comes to these decisions regarding the team, how do you think this man balances being a fan and at the same time being a businessman? You know, we can only go off the models by which we've seen this take place. So let's just assume for a second he's going to be hands-on and active. I can't imagine I would spend $1.6 billion on a team and not be at every, you know, right? Like if the three of us, would we, can we all admit, like, if we spent $1.6 billion on a team, like I'm going to every practice, I'm probably sitting in every player personnel meeting. I'm going to want to know what the coach, like I want in, right? Like I just paid access. I want access to everything. You with me? Well, yeah, you, you deserve it. You own it. Right. So let's assume for a second he's hands-on. Now, now we can kind of try to figure out what hands-on is. So, uh, and I don't know how much time he still plans to spend with Qualtrics. Like Mark Cuban was young, brilliant business person with, and wasn't involved in broadcast.com anymore. So the Mavericks were his job. And I think we've seen him evolve over time, um, both, you know, as an owner. And I think we've seen his youthfulness and brilliance and outside expertise really push the league into new areas and be an incredibly great asset to the league from a bigger picture. So I think that's a model that we can see with Ryan Smith. We DJ, you've talked. Um, well, I don't know if you've talked about it on the air, but you know, you and I, I don't want to steal your ideas in a private conversation, but I mean, you've talked about Larry's evolution as an owner. We saw that firsthand and you can elaborate on that. Um, and I think, you know, if we look around the league, you're, you're seeing a lot of these young owners come in with, who've had great success in the, in the tech world predominantly. And now they, this is their new venture. And I think there's, you know, you, we can look around at other owners to see how they've done it, but, um, and, and watch them evolve. So when you look at this schedule coming up, how much is depth going to matter? This 72-game schedule that ends before the Olympics and starts December 22nd, are they, have you done the math on this? Do they have to go back to some four games and five nights to get this in, in which case how you build your roster matters because you've got to build some depth in when you've got key players over 30? I don't think so. Um, I'm hearing 15 back-to-backs, which is a few more, but I'm guessing that almost all of those, and I might be 100% wrong here, I've, I don't know this, uh, I'm guessing that those back-to-backs could be without travel. So we go to Oklahoma City and play Tuesday, Wednesday. Fly to Dallas, play Friday, Sunday. You're not playing four games in five nights. You're playing four games in six nights, and you're playing them in two cities. You're only taking three plane flights. The wear and tear is less. And, you know, you used to play those four games in probably seven nights with five plane flights. So you're playing one more game in the six days because of the fact that you're on a condensed schedule, but you're doing it with two fewer plane flights and probably less wear and tear. You know, Dennis kind of alluded to something like that in his press conference talking about how to minimize travel, so you're probably on to something there. 
I didn't completely see how they'd pull off what he was talking about, but he said they needed to learn lessons from Orlando and that the players routinely said that the, the less travel was a big factor because the shooting percentages went through the roof. Um, but probably for multiple reasons, and the players thought fewer plane flights, well, in the case of Orlando, one to get there and then no more after that, uh, were a big part of that. So, All right, David, well, we are out you of know, time. Would, oh, go ahead. TJ, I would share, I mean, I don't, I don't have anyone trying to dunk on me, and I'm not trying to hit a crossover jumper, but I have always said that the fatigue of the NBA season is the plane flight. You know, I don't know what it's like to play back-to-back days, but I, you know, I can, when I... So my fatigue is that I'm staring at my computer screen and I can't take in any information, right? So the computer's not trying to dunk on me. It's not the same. But I am living the same life. And I, I will tell you, it's plane flights are the item that wears me out. David, thanks for the time. We appreciate it as always. Thank you, guys. David Locke joining us every week right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. And David's weekly interview brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. Coming up in about 15 minutes, B.J. Raines, Boise State beat writer for the Idaho Press Tribune. Coming up next, question of the day, part two. You'd fans, look into the future. See how I changed that, PK? That's a little better, isn't sure, it? Sure, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that next. Stay with us. Let's go. The Big Show. It's a big with Gordon Monson and Jake Scott. Josh Newman from the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm sure that you have a thousand sources that are whispering in your ear about who the starter is going to be. What's your best guess? I think it's Cameron Rising. One, he has spent more time in Andy Ludwig's system. Remember, Rising had the red shirt last year, spent game days in the press box next to Ludwig. Number two, Kyle Whittingham has kind of harped throughout fall camp. Accuracy is the most important thing. They're charting every pass. And Kyle, not too long ago, really kind of made it a point to say that Rising's accuracy has really taken a pretty significant step forward. We haven't seen practice. I could absolutely be wrong, but I'm at like 60-40 that it's rising over Jake Bentley. The Big Show, weekdays from 2 to 7 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Catch DJ and PK 24-7 on Twitter. Now listen up, listen up. At David DJ James and at PK Kinahan. That's just how we roll. You're locked on to DJ and PK on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, the youth kick off their season tomorrow at 1.30 on ESPN2 against the Arizona Wildcats. You may have heard 2 o'clock on ESPNU. Wipe that from the memory banks. It's now 1.30 on ESPN2. It's a season opener. What is your prediction for the youths this season? Question up on Facebook, DJ and PK, on Twitter at David DJ James. Utah Man of I tweets back at us, PK. Realistically, 5-1 and one is the ceiling. Four and two is most likely. Three and three is possible. A young defense making a few terrible mistakes at the wrong time. But I would vomit on PK's lawn if they end up going three and three. I suppose that's possible. I mean, because particularly with this COVID season uh, situation, and some players might not be available. I who knows? You know, I, I am I am inching, not running, but inching toward thinking this season is just to make some money. And it's not really about a traditional race to see who's going to win the division, who's going to win the conference. I'm not there yet. 
But the Cal Washington thing has got me pointed in that direction, that the intent of this season is to recoup as much money that you've lost as possible, which if that's the case, I'm fine with it. And, and I don't have any problem with it. You make as much money as you possibly can. I mean, because you got some associate assistant to something or other whose job is depending upon it, and that person, man or woman, needs employment. So if it's just to make money, have at it. No problem there. Uh, but 3-3, three and three, uh, under just uh, all things being equal, uh, probably don't see that. 5-1, and one, if I'm Utah, I'd take a 5-1 and one season right now. Yeah, if you said I can go 5-1 and one this year and, and get these guys some experience so they come back, that's the thing with rising, get him as much experience as possible. And so then he comes back next year, and next year that puts him in a great spot to really contend for everything, which, you know, if you're right back and you've obviously contended the last two years and you go 5-1 and one this year and that strengthens your case for contending to win the conference next year, you got a program going. You don't just have a team or a season. You got a legit program, and that's only just going to feast off itself, and it's going to breed even more success because now everybody is certainly uh, in the region, the entire western region, uh, basically I would say mountain and Pacific time zones. Utah is no mystery. Utah comes in your door, and you're excited to open it for them because they got something going on. So in that way, they go five and one this year. I think that's outstanding. Uh, five and one would be great. Five and one is great. I, I don't know that I can agree, agree that it's the ceiling though. Uh, the the same way you talk about well, three and three is possible. Six and zero oh is two, and I think it's about as likely as three and three, which isn't very. But when you say five and one, that's absolutely the ceiling. It's not. Oh, it's not it's the it's high end of what's probable. No, the the tweet was. And, okay. and so I'm going back to that. I'm like five and one. I I mean six and zero is possible. I think it's highly unlikely, uh, but it is possible. I mean there's a, there's four teams on their schedule that are on track to be bad. And I know it's on paper and team surprises, but right now you know, there's four bad teams, and the Utah to beat them. And you're right, everything may not be equal, and somebody may go into a game missing key guys, and so you know we'll have to see what it looks like when you get there. But right, right now. Four of them look like no-brainer picks on paper. They, they oh, look like 10-point yeah. or more point spreads in Vegas. So you're really talking about can you beat USC at home and can you beat ASU? Yes. And you're an underdog against, AS, uh, against USC, and ASU is basically a toss-up. We'll see when we get there. It's game four. We'll have a better read on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 6-0 yeah. is not this incredible stretch. you got to do something well. crazy. But you're not going to be favored against USC. That doesn't mean oh, I, don't, keep... I don't know that. I can't say that. Mm. Okay, you're introducing doubt, but it is highly probable they are going to be underdogs against USC. But you're yeah. right. If ASU beats USC tomorrow, <laughs> then everything changes. Everything. Right. And again, we're, we're working on paper. We've got no non-conference games going into the conference games, and we don't know who's going to be playing. But SC right now on paper is a 10-point uh, favorite over ASU. Oh, yeah, and they should win. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, the, because Utah has a couple easy games to start, whoever wins that game tomorrow between the Devils and the Trojans, I think is automatically the favorite. Yeah, because they got one big game left. <laughs> right. And because, yeah, Utah has, as you say, has some games down the line, not at the start, which could play in their favor. Get Rising some experience, mm-hmm. get the DB some experience, because that's really all that I see that is that big of an issue. 
There's some question marks there, granted, running back. I understand that. But I don't think – it's like with Boise. They've had 1,000-yard rushers so many years. The Utes have had so much success running the ball that I assume someone's going to be able to do it and do it effectively. So, But it, it's a question mark. It's not really an issue. To me, the issue, quarterback play and secondary. And you've got some games. The schedule you have of the contenders, you have the most favorable uh, – format of the scheduling recognizing that everybody's playing basically the same except for the crossovers different but in the division but i like how they have some what i can consider basically almost tune-up games to get them ready for the tougher games whereas the trojans and the devils and they got to hit it right off the bat which is why you give the trojans the uh, edge because they have some more experience than the devils but that could play in utah's disadvantage down the road too for that matter because then the devils uh, youthfulness can be caught up and they can be in a better position to win uh, in the week after Thanksgiving as opposed to right now when you play them. So yeah, you can go back and forth on that all day if you want. It just determines on how you're going to play. But I like the Utes to have a pretty good season. I mean, that's the final analysis there. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 the zone. BYU, big game tonight with Boise State. BJ Reigns, Boise State beat writer for the Idaho Press Tribune and Blue Turf Sports, joins us next. They're going to have their starting quarterback and their starting running back. And if they don't, how much will it matter? We'll talk with him next. Stay with us.